Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill. And sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful With the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Amen. Our Father in heaven, open our ears and change our hearts to be more in tune with yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you've heard this is the middle of a three-week series on money, and questions have been coming back to us. We love questions, keep them coming. One of the good questions that's come is, why are we talking about money? Why are we talking about money? Because our normal pattern on a Sunday morning is to just work through a book of the Bible, like John for the rest of the term, and issues come up as they come up. So why have we decided to take three weeks thinking about money? That's a good question. And the most basic answer is that we elders didn't want the church family's decisions about money and giving to be entirely based on the vision evening and the plans and the needs that will be explained there. Rather, we want our generosity 
to come from the Bible's teaching. We want hearts for all of us that are shaped not just because a tin is being shaken, but because the Lord Jesus is changing our hearts into lifetimes of willing, glad, sacrificial giving. That's why we're taking a bit of time to talk about money. Another question that regularly comes up is, um, what on earth are you going to say? <laughs> like, what, what are you going to preach on? And it can be a bit tricky. I mean, especially a preacher like me, whose salary is paid by you. Well, I've got some good news. One small bit of good news is I don't know who gives what. But a far more important bit of good news is that this morning, I am not preaching on money. It's not me. The Lord Jesus is preaching. He's our guest preacher. And I don't just mean that general uh, preaching that, that um, every passage of the Bible is, is the Lord Jesus speaking. We do believe that. But I mean quite specifically in Luke 16, Jesus, look at verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. A sermon on money it takes the form of a story, a parable, and then two lines of application. So then, whether you've been reading that Graham Bynum book and agreeing with it or not, whether you agree with everything in the small group discussions this week or not, well, this morning, Jesus has the microphone. So I'd encourage us all, including me, to listen carefully and open our hearts to the one who knows what he's talking about. We could have picked lots of places in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about money. There's the rich fool, Luke 12. There's the rich man and Lazarus later in this chapter. There's Jesus meeting Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector. But I've picked this one, Luke 16, the parable of the shrewd manager, partly because it ties in with the parables we're hearing on Sunday nights at the moment. So we're in Luke 15 on Sunday nights, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. Those parables show the center of what God's about, his mission, his heartbeat in this world. Our parable this morning tells us how money fits with that. We'll see more of that later. But that's more than enough introduction. It's time to get our heads into the story that Jesus tells. And I think we do need to concentrate here because um, it is actually a really shocking story. Really shocking. I've got a friend who works for an insurance firm. I'm not going to name them, but they're not in Scotland, don't worry. Um, he's a complete slacker, from what I can tell. Like he, he never gets in before 9.30. Uh, he seems to take two-hour lunches, and even when he's in the office, he wanders around chatting to people. Maybe you've come across someone like that. You know, they're kind of happy to nick the stationery, stretch the expenses, surf the web at work, knock off early, turn up late. Usually it's kind of... It's a bit annoying, but, but it's kind of harmless. Just imagine if that colleague in your mind's eye was actually embezzling the firm's money. So they're charging some of the client time to their own private account. They're, they're buying presents for their family on the company credit card. That's where Jesus' story starts. Verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So this is the story of a dodgy manager, a dishonest manager, someone who's wasting his master's possessions. And I think if we knew someone in the office like that, someone who's kind of abusing their position, they're lining their own pockets, you kind of hope they'd get caught, wouldn't you? And so when senior management gets wind of it, 
Verse 2, the boss calls him in to explain himself. Well, it would be a bit of a relief, I think. And actually, when you saw the dismissal notice land on their desk, when you realize they'll be gone by the end of the day, again, I guess there'd be a feeling of gladness, relief. Justice is being done. Glad that is until you overhear a phone conversation later that day. It's your dodgy colleague, and they're offering one of your clients, your team's clients, a deal that they can't refuse. They say, good afternoon, just a quick query on your account. Um, how much is it you owe us this quarter? Oh, yeah, I know, it's hefty, isn't it? Um, how about we just halve that? I'll, just, I'll bill you for half the time we've worked on your case. Don't worry, as long as we do it quickly, it'll be no problem. Why am I doing it? Ah, you know, just giving a friend a favor. No time to chat, got to go, bye. I mean, you, you just wouldn't believe what you were hearing, would you? You'd probably think, I'm going to go and say something. But just as you head over, the phone starts ringing again. Hi, thanks, thanks for getting back to me. Uh, did you get my message? Yeah, we're offering 20% off all the work you've, we've done for you in the last tax year. Straight up, that's the deal. Obviously, just between you and me. But I'll do all the paperwork. As long as we do it today, it's all kosher. No problem, no problem. I'm sure you'll find a way to thank me later. I guess you'd be shocked, wouldn't you, at the, just the sheer cheek of it. The audacity of this person to use the firm's cash to make themselves friends for after they get the sack. But that's exactly what the dodgy manager in this story is doing. It's outrageous. I guess you'd sit there astonished. But you'd be even more shocked if Jesus walked into the room, patted them on the back, and said, clever boy. Did you notice in the reading, that's what happens? Verse 8, Jesus describes this uh, manager, verses 1 to 7, every bit as conniving as the colleague I've just described, and Jesus gives him the thumbs up, verse 8. Just when you expect him to say he, he was bad, there's commendation of the, master's shrewd, uh, the manager's shrewdness. Let me read verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Or in other words, Jesus says, that dodgy manager thinks more clearly than Christians sometimes do with money. And to add to the shock further, verse 9, Jesus then recommends his approach. Make friends for yourselves by using wealth. This is a story that should leave us reeling. It's a real surprise. I think we'd expect Jesus to come along at the end and say, well, to point out the obvious, this guy was dishonest, he was unfaithful, he was a cheat, a crook, he didn't handle his master's wealth well, and so I guess we'd assume the application is going to be, we should be nothing like this guy. He was dishonest, we should be honest. He was unfaithful, we should be faithful. He didn't care about his master, we should honor our master with money. That's what we're expecting. And from verse 10 onwards, that's what we're going to get. So point two of this talk will be Jesus explaining exactly that application. 
But before we get there, Jesus has something surprising, really surprising for us. Let me say, if you're not a Christian, just as an aside, if you're not a Christian here, the surprises in the Bible are one of the reasons I trust it as God's word. It's not just man-made ideas. It's not just echo chamber of our own thinking. The Bible sometimes shocks us. And if you are a Christian, I hope when you are surprised by the Bible, you tune in more carefully. It's always an opportunity to grow. So let's tune in. Let's tackle the shock head on. What does Jesus want us to learn positively from this dishonest cheat? And you'll see on the back of the service sheet there's an outline if you want to follow it along. We're we're getting to point one. It's funny, when you read commentaries on this passage, some of them tie themselves in knots trying to explain this shock away. They're so worried that this guy's dishonest, but Jesus seems to be saying, copy him, that, that they basically make up details. They say things like, maybe originally the master, the overall master, had overcharged, and so the manager was just doing the fair thing by cutting the bills. Or maybe he was just removing his personal commission. But I hope the alarm bells ring when you, when you hear people making up details that Jesus didn't put in the story, especially when Jesus does call the master dishonest in verse 8. Well, that can't be the point at all. No, the way to understand the parable is just to look at how Jesus applies it afterwards. And there are two applications. There are two points. The first one is to copy the manager's shrewdness. Then we'll get on to not copying his dishonesty. So firstly, let's copy the manager's shrewdness by being clever with money. Just look at verse 8. Look carefully at verse 8. What does the master commend? Well, obviously not the manager's dishonesty. He commends the dishonest manager's shrewdness. I guess the master had that kind of resigned acceptance of someone who knows they've just been outwitted. The kind of, well, you've got to hand it to him. He's a complete crook, but he's got brains. And Jesus carries on, verse 8, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. That is to say that this, this shrewd manager, this man of the world, used his brain better when it came to money than people of the light, than Christians. So we're not supposed to be thrown by the dishonesty. We're to copy his thinking, not his morals. But by using a dishonest example, I think that strengthens Jesus' point. I think he wants us to be shocked by the idea that as Christians, sometimes when we handle money, we, we could be more dippy, <laughs> more slow-witted, more kind of foggy thinking than this total cheat. That's how Jesus is grabbing our attention. Surely, he uses the phrase people of the light to describe disciples. Surely people who are in the know with God, in the light, should have the clearest financial thinking. But Jesus thinks we have a lot to learn. So what is it? What do we need to learn from this guy? Well, here's the point. Copy the manager's shrewdness. Be clever with money. How? Well, by spending what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. That's what the manager got clear. He spent something he couldn't keep to gain what he couldn't lose. 
Just think through the story again. You can see it. Remember verse 2, he gets the sack, and he's got one day left. And so verse 3, he says to himself, what shall I do now since my master is taking away the management from me? The shrewd manager knew that all the wealth currently in his hands, all the money he was managing, was about to go. It wouldn't last. It was going to be taken away. Funnily enough, the last person in Luke's gospel to ask the question, what shall I do now, was the rich fool. He'd made loads of profits. He assumed they'd last forever. He asked, what shall I do? And his answer was, I'll build bigger barns to store more wealth. And that night he died, met God, and God said, you fool. Mr. Stupid thought money would last forever. But Mr. Clever, in chapter 16, saw time was limited. And so the cogs get worrying. What could I use this money for that would last? And his idea is to blow his master's money on making some friends. I mean, it's brilliantly sharp, isn't it? By the end of the day, he's not going to have any of this in his hands. But he finds a way to use it. He hatches a plan. He cuts the bills massively. I mean, it doesn't cost him anything. It's not his money. A hundred barrels of oil. Who, who cares if you halve it? take 20% off. It gained him friendships for life. And Jesus takes that story into the real world and says, be clever with money. Spend what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. So we just need to think, what can't we keep and what can't we lose? Um, I hope it's fairly obvious that we can't keep our money, not permanently. The Bible and experience show again and again that people can't keep money forever. I mean, even here, Jesus says it, verse 9. So he uses the phrase unrighteous wealth. Don't be thrown by that. I think that's just describing money in this world, this unrighteous world. Um, So what does he say about unrighteous wealth in verse 9? Well, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if, but when, so that when money fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Again and again, the Bible says we can't hold on to our cash, and no one in the history of humanity ever has beyond the grave. Our maker calls time, we're called to account, all all the houses, cars, shares, what's in the larder, the wardrobe, the pensions. We can't hold on, just can't keep our money. But the striking thing in verse 9 is that there is something that lasts beyond the grave. Verse 9 again. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. We can make friends for eternity. Now let me be really clear here. This is not Jesus saying we can buy our place in heaven. The Bible's really clear. We can do nothing to earn our place in heaven. In fact, at this point of Luke, Jesus is on the way to the cross to pay the price for us. Later, he'll meet the rich, run, rich young ruler who doesn't get that, thinks he can pay his way, earn his way. So it's not about buying our place. 
We can't buy a place at God's party, but we can invest money in getting other people there. That's the point, making friends for eternity. It's an amazing promise. I had to read verse 9 a number of times to, to kind of see what it was saying. I assumed it was saying God would welcome us into eternal dwellings. But look, who is it doing the welcoming? Well, these friends we've made, so that when money fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There's another surprise. What does that actually look like? So Jesus is saying, I can use my wallet to make eternal friends. What what does that actually look like? Is it kind of just grab the nearest Christian, write them a check, and they'll say thank you in glory? I don't think it's necessarily that. Just, Just think for a moment. How could our money help someone get to God's heavenly banquet? I think it happens on small scales and really big scales. So on the small scale, and I can think of a a worker I I used to know um, who would take a different colleague out for lunch every week, his treat, and he'd just chat to them, get to know them. He'd be praying that morning for a chance to chat about Jesus. Sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't. I know of folks who are willing, again, small things, to pay for kind of coffees or books when they study the Bible one-to-one with someone. I know others who would hire a venue or pay for catering so that Christianity Explored could run in their neighborhood or near their workplace. I know others who just pay for hobbies or sports clubs. Again, so they can get to know folks outside of church who could be invited to, to eternity. That's the small-scale stuff. Then there's the much larger scale, the kind of regular giving, where Christian people give substantial portions of their salary to do things like help fund a church plant, to get gospel work going and outreach to a whole new community. I guess many folks here helped fund this premises where every week lots of people hear the good news of Jesus. Hopefully, whatever local church we're in, whether you're visiting or at Chalmers, we play our part in helping it run, the, the staffing costs, the logistics costs. Again, that helps the message get out. As we saw in 1 Timothy, local churches hold up the word of truth. It might look like supporting relief organizations that that speak the gospel. So an Edinburgh City mission. It might look like supporting global mission partners, people spreading the message, the good news of Jesus, that gets people right with God for eternity. And those can be major investments, regular, planned giving, part of the budget. Whatever it looks like, Jesus says, spending money that we can't keep anyway to help other people get to eternity will ensure a warm welcome. It's not a threat, it's an opportunity, it's a promise. Just imagine the scene as you walk into God's banquet, God's eternal banquet, and you see familiar faces. Hey, that's Jane. That, that is Jane from Chalmers. I remember she was new and I bought her lunch the first couple of Sundays because she was feeling a bit nervous and out of place before she settled in. Hey, that's my colleague who, who really enjoyed that carol service. I bought them a Christian book. Never heard anything else. <laughs> but here they are. There's the bloke I bought a Christianity Explored DVD to watch together with. And at that moment, you're interrupted by someone running towards you, and they're shouting, welcome, welcome. We are so glad you've made it. 
you're slightly taken aback by his enthusiasm. <laughs> They're not British. I'm sorry, do I know you? He, he's like, know me? It's because of you that I'm here. You look blank, and he kind of carries on with, without a breath. It was you, it was your money. It was, it was your money that paid for the Bible to come to us. You know, the giving, the Wycliffe Bible translation giving. That's how we heard about this place. You're astonished, not least because behind him there's a whole crowd of people waving and smiling at you. You begin to grin with joy. You feel pat on the shoulder. Mate, thank you so much for those breakfasts you paid for. I didn't realize at the time, but as a new Christian, I think that's what kept me going as a Christian at work. And the party just continues, one after another. Some of our Jama's global partners come up because they want to introduce us to hundreds of people, grateful people, who've been influenced and heard the message through them, thrilled that our money was involved in helping them reach the feast. Jesus says you can make friends for eternity. And I think when you start to realize what Jesus is saying here, that choice of how do we spend resources, it begins, begins to become a no-brainer, doesn't it? Like the shrewd manager, in one sense, we have nothing to lose. We can't hold on to our money. When time is called, it becomes worthless to us. I know it can feel pretty substantial. I know it can do a lot in this life, whether it's the, the new gadget or the house in the area I want or the savings account that provides security. Or, but on the other hand, the lasting joy of my friends or my family or my colleagues or people I don't even know yet, Spending eternity with Jesus is the kind of deal of a lifetime, the investment opportunity of a lifetime. And so, no wonder Jesus says, come on, Christians, use your heads, think clearly, wise up, spend what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. I mean, it, I just think it makes brilliant financial sense. Who wouldn't want to follow this advice? Well, verse 14 gives us a group who wouldn't want to follow the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard these things and they ridiculed him. Now, the Pharisees were religious people, some of the keenest in society. They no doubt would have joined us here every week, but they'd be sneering at that first point from Jesus. I guess they'd be saying all this talk of kind of spending for eternity. It's a bit over the top. It's a bit radical, a bit fanatical. It's not quite their brand of Christianity. It's a nice story, Jesus, but I'm not going to be reshaping my budget. Thank you very much. And I think knowing their listening, as well as his disciples, Jesus issues these warnings in verses 10 to 13. Verses 10 to 13. Verse 13 is the strongest. No servant can serve two masters Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God or money. I think that makes sense in practice. There always comes a crunch point in making decisions and priorities. Either we live for God and use money to serve him in various ways, or we live for money and we squeeze God in around the edges, give him what's left. But the more I've studied this passage, the more I really think these verses are building on the story of the shrewd manager. This is our big second point, shorter than the first. 
don't copy the master's dishonesty. So we copy his clear thinking, his shrewdness, but we don't copy his dishonesty, his unfaithfulness. Because just like him in the story, so with us, the money we handle is not actually ours. It's not ours. I know that everything tells us it is ours, and we feel like it's ours. We think, well, hang on, it was uh, my hard work, my job, my brain, my education. But actually, who gave us the breath to do hard work? Who caused us to be born somewhere where we'd get a good education? Who gave us a brain to use? Look at verse 12. It makes the point explicitly. Verse 12, if you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is reminding us that everything we have, including our money, is actually a gift from our Creator. We're stewards of someone else's money, our Master God. Which does mean that the question to be asking is the verse 10 question, the faithfulness question. Am I being faithful or wasteful with God's money? That doesn't mean we can never enjoy things. God is a good creator, creates things to be received with thanksgiving. But we do have to ask, am I being faithful in line with God's priorities, my master, because it's his money? Let me read verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. There's the echo of the dishonest manager. And verse 11, if you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? If you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? My money belongs to someone else. It's actually on loan to me. And so it's, it's a kind of test, a, a tiny temporary test of who's my master and my faithfulness to my master. And it's clear for the Pharisees where their loyalties lie. Verse 14, they loved money. They just loved it. They loved the, the power, the security, the status, the position it gave them in the world. They're not about to start sacrificing any modicum of their impressive career or clothes or house or fine dining to invest in getting no hopers to the new creation. They're shaped by now, not eternity. And the scary thing is from verse 15 that God is not impressed. Outwardly, they look religious. Inwardly, their heart is not with God. I think if we'd been reading through Luke's gospel, if we'd just come off the back of Luke 15, I think we'd understand how sad and shocking it is that the Pharisees are not on board. So in Luke 15, this is all one unit, so if you cast your eyes back to 15 verse 1, uh, verse 2, sorry, the Pharisees there were grumbling. And then at the end of our passage, again, they're grumbling, they're ridiculing Jesus. In the middle of those two grumbles, Jesus tells the three lost parables. The, lost, um, the, the shepherd finding a lost sheep, the woman finding a lost coin, the father finding a lost son. The thing we often miss in those stories is that each of them ends with a party, a wonderful party. Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. Celebrate, my son who was lost has been found. 
And Jesus' point, as you go through, is absolutely clear. What is God's business? Well, saving people, seeking and saving the lost. That's what Jesus says he came to do in Luke 19. And there's rejoicing. There's a party. Heaven's heart is on seeking and saving lost people. That's God's business. And of course, as followers, our hearts should be increasingly on board with God in that, rejoicing to see people saved. And where Luke 16 fits in is to say, if your hearts are with the party, well, then your wallets should follow. And I think we do see that. We saw last week that God, when people become Christians, God turns our hearts around. And I think we do see people joyfully giving, not just giving because they've been told to, but joyfully giving, knowing that it can make friends for eternity. Unless someone is a grumpy brother. So between those three parties and the bit about money is the grumpy brother, the older son of the prodigal. He shares nothing of his father's joy. He cares nothing that his brother's been saved. He wish he hadn't come back. And ironically enough, he complains how much the party cost. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. Because they don't share Jesus' passion for the lost, they certainly won't accept his teaching on money, giving money to make friends for eternity. So here's my practical advice. I know one of the biggest questions people have been asking is, can you just tell me, <laughs> like, where is the line? How do I get this right? How do I juggle the, the kind of enjoy God's good creation with give to God's work? I'm not going to tell you a specific answer. I'm not sure the Bible does in the New Testament. But here's a suggestion, a practical suggestion. I think this would be a good time of the year to, to kind of review a budget, or for those of us who are young and disorganized, to make a budget as part of giving. That enables giving often. So why not review a budget and right at the top of the page... All of this belongs to my master. That one thing changes our attitude to wealth massively. All of this belongs to God. That means the things I spend on that I enjoy, I give thanks to God. And it also means I think about what I should put on the bottom of the page, which is my master is seeking and saving people for eternity. Those would be two good things to put on your budget page. All of this belongs to my master, if I'm a Christian, and what is my master about? Seeking and saving the lost. That's his business. Of course, we have to be realistic and sensible. We need food, clothes, shelter. God provides us money for that. Of course, we don't want to be a burden on, other. we shouldn't, on others. We shouldn't be kind of aiming at becoming destitute or poverty. Remember 1 Timothy, we're supposed to provide for ourselves and for family members so as not to burden the church. So there's all sorts of decisions we'll make in terms of spending on ourselves and our families. But it's God's money that we're stewarding in that way. But lots of us do have choices we can make about disposable income. Whatever it is, the number of coffees, the eating out a month, the quality or the quantity of the clothes or gadgets or food or holidays or cars or entertainment we buy. There's lots of choices. Some of us here will already be giving sacrificially to charmers, to other things. And I hope the effect of this morning and this series 
is just to turn up your joy. If you're already giving sacrificially, I hope you do so with a a joy at the reminder of how worth it it is. That's not money wasted. That's money put to the one thing that will last eternally. I hope it gladdens you. Others here might not yet be giving, just haven't got round to it, or, or realistically not giving much. And I hope Jesus' motivations do actually encourage us to give up what we can't keep, to gain what we can't lose. One question that's come to me, people have asked, I'm giving sacrificially outside of Chalmers, but not really to this local church. What should I do about that? I don't think this is the passage to fully answer it, so we may come back to that question. But while there are good reasons to give through a local church, the Christian life generally is not individualistic, it's corporate, and together we can make wise decisions about where the money goes. There are good reasons to to give at least a chunk of um, our giving through our local church. But I think the bigger test from this passage is, is most of my giving going to getting people to eternity? Now, that can happen through relief work, giving to the poor. It can happen through a whole range of organizations, as well as through local church. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's our master's business. And so it's right to be running a eye through our giving and, and thinking, if, I've, if I have a choice between where money goes, can I give it to a place that not only helps needs here and now, but alongside that helps needs for eternity? And as an eldership, um, in thinking about the church family's external giving, we are keen to encourage that. Some of you will have very little money to give. Maybe some of you students just have debt. That's what you have <laughs> to give. Let me encourage us that money is just one sphere in which we get on board with our master's business. This eternal perspective has massive implications in all our life choices, I think. Some of you may have heard of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary. He gave up his life trying to invite Orca Indians to God's banquet. And he wrote in his diary, from this passage, these words with which I'll close. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim had a much shorter life than he would have if he'd stayed here and stayed as wealthy as he could have been. But I'm sure he'll receive a warm welcome for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know you love a cheerful giver. And so we pray the effect of this morning and the effect of this whole series would be that you would change our hearts to be more in tune with you, more in love with your party and your mission of rescuing lost people. And give us wisdom, Lord. You know we can tie ourselves up in knots about some decisions financially. Please help us. Rescue us from false guilt but also where we're we're blind or hard-hearted. Please break through and convict us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.